Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Black Lives Matter. Restorative justice, diversity, and sustainability. These are just a few of the topics we're going to cover in this episode of The Spark with my guest, Bill Timpson. Bill is a professor in the School of Education at Colorado State University here in Fort Collins, Colorado. He has written or co-authored 19 books, including several that address issues of peace and reconciliation, sustainability, and diversity. Dr. Timpson served as the lead PI for the Global Challenges Research Team, focused on writing case studies on the conflicts that often occur around competition for natural resources and what could be learned through peace and reconciliation. Such an interesting show today. I'm glad that you're here to join us. This is The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Since you and I met for coffee uh-huh. several months ago, maybe four months ago now, five months right. ago, right. Our, our whole world has changed. That's right. And so I'm really, I, I've been thinking about what does Bill think about this? Yeah. What, what is your, yeah, yeah. What, how yeah. are you experiencing this? And you have such an amazing eclectic worldview and world mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about, yeah, what's been going on in you and through you during this time? Great question. You know, one of the books that I shared with you was on teaching, teaching diversity. And what comes to mind is that's an issue everywhere on the planet with different groups and who's in power and who's in favor, who's privileged, who's not. And we tend to divide up. So the part of me looks at all that and I just shake my head and want to cry for the ongoing historical tensions and, and hurts. And another part of me wants to sort of get people sort of rethinking these differences and how the differences could be a strength and not a threat. Look at music and all the contributions of African-Americans to the music scene. And a lot of people have adopted those rhythms and those examples. And yes, there's the issue of exploitation, and I understand that. But on the other hand, there's a richness when people are willing to set aside, this is what I've always done. I'm not going to look at other forms. And they remain stuck. So it's hard in the middle of chaos and disruption and protest. Uh, I don't want to sound Pollyannish or naive, but I've been places in the world where where people have crossed that line. You know, you think of South Africa and Mandela and Tutu saying, let's move towards a rainbow nation that is inclusive of everybody. It's not whites are in power and now blacks are in power. It's not an either or. And in South Korea, in the midst of all that sword rattling from the north with missiles coming over, there were a number of people in our class on peacemaking who wanted to see how it might be possible to think about reunification. So while American news headlines were blasting the threats from North Korea, there were active duty military officers in my class 
who were saying, we understand what's going on in the North. It takes some intellectual skill to not get stuck in an either or. And a lot of my work focuses on handling complexity. So what's happening today is, to me, is an example. Sadly, in our schools and other places, we emphasize uh, dichotomous thinking. So yes, no, right, wrong. You're for Black Lives Matter, you're against it. You're for individual freedom and history to keep the statutes, or you're against it. And yet, the, to handle the complexity of the situation, we have to get past that either or. Be willing to understand other perspectives, even if we disagree. And be willing to be open to conversations about how do we move forward. And we're hoping that this, this, this turmoil will get people to look beyond the protests, some of the data coming out about the victims of the pandemic and how it's disproportionately poor people, black and brown people. It's a reflection of a horrifically broken healthcare system and a reflection of income inequality in this country. And those questions are tough for people to handle, especially if they're stuck in a sense of, I earned this, this is mine, don't even think about coming near it, as opposed to what I see in Scandinavia is more of a collective commitment to community, that we're willing to tax ourselves so that everyone has health care, so that everyone has good schools, and it's not just the wealthy suburbs who get those benefits. So I'm, I'm torn, I see it, and I want to get people in the room and start talking, but I want to say, you know, let's, let's move forward. Let's honest and open and listen and empathize and move forward. A lot, you know, you write about that in your own book. Yeah, absolutely. And I really do feel like what you're saying, it's like moving from these polar opposites, from these total diverse pendulum swings into a middle of where where we can find some balance with one another and that that is going to be a shade of gray. Right. It is. And and that's what I think it's uncomfortable because yeah. it's much more comfortable to be further out on the end and holding on to our rigidity and our That's beliefs right. instead right. of you know stepping into this place in the middle where it's a little more uncomfortable. There's a growth edge, which is never comfortable, right. and where we actually drop into our hearts and listen right. to one another instead right. of just trying to prove that we're right. And it may not be anything that our parents, our community our friends equipped us to do. I'm thinking in in Northern Ireland, I spent quite a bit of time there. 400 years, four to 600 years, depending on on how you want to count it, of conflict, violence, trouble, civil war at times. The British had uh, colonized Northern Ireland and put the locals in a subservient position, not too far removed from slaves or serfdom. Second-class citizens, they couldn't own property, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been hundreds of years of pushing back in conflict, and both sides had gotten armed. So you had paramilitaries on both sides. And the troubles exploded in 72. The British troops were keeping the peace. Think about our own troops in Washington during the chaos. There was a nonviolent protest, and the troops opened fire on the marchers, and 14 were killed, 17 wounded. And the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, announced that that was it. If the British are going to use combat troops against its own citizens, then we're at war. And after that, you saw 20 years of bombing and killing and 
yeah, and, and taking the war over to the United Kingdom. And finally, in the midst of all that, how are they going to get out of this us or them? You know, and the population was pretty evenly divided, Protestants and Catholics. So, you know, if, if the pro Protestants won, were they going to kill all the Catholics? If the Catholics won, were they? No. I mean, that, so in the midst of all that chaos, a grassroots citizens movement emerged, challenging the citizens, all of them, of Northern Ireland that, you know, we, we have to move on. And, and they would say to the boys with the guns, because they control the conversation, they would say, listen, guys, we've been trying bombs and bullets for 400 years, and we don't see any improvement. Where You know, our economy's stagnant, there's tension where, where people don't feel safe, they feel threatened. We want a new way forward. It's not going to be us or them. It's going to be a collective, like South Africa, inclusive. And that percolated. So Mayred McGuire, who won the 1976 Nobel Peace Prize, her nieces were killed by a escaping IRA guy driving a car, being pursued by the police, crashed into a sidewalk, killing her three nieces. And she said, that's it. I've had it with being a citizen, too quietly accepting all this. So she started, after church on Sundays, a weekly walk, started with a handful of people in a group, from the church one Sunday into a Protestant section of Belfast, the next Sunday into a Catholic section. And consciously, these were mixed groups, mostly women. And I think with a country dominated by boys with guns for too long, she knew that that's where her, her base, it's the population saw this was just insane. And they would march into the other, the Catholic community, and they would get yelled at by the Protestants, or Catholics. The next week, they'd walk into a Protestant community, into a public park, and get yelled at by the Protestants. They were smart enough, and the, and the churches you know, supported this, this effort at peace building. They were smart enough to bring the media along, you know, not unlike what you're doing, and so they started taking pictures of citizens throwing rocks and sticks and yelling things at these people who came in unarmed and just wanted to use a public park. Then they started pushing into the schools, of integrating schools. And you saw these horrific videos of, of citizens attacking little kids because they were of a different faith. So little by little, it grew and it grew and it grew. And it forced this coming together. And part of the process was they had to convince Americans of Irish descent to stop sending money to the IRA. So a lot of Americans were still fighting a proxy war with their history. And converting that money, instead of going for guns for the IRA, instead it went for economic development. We're not gonna get anywhere unless we rebuild the economy and the country. So, it moved towards a peace process, and the agreement was fascinating. They got the British to show up, the authorities. The British agreed to pull back their military presence. If you've ever been in a country where there's a heavy presence of outsiders with arms, think about the U.S. in Iraq or the U.S. in Iran. Uh, surprise, surprise, those people, are, many are furious. So the British agreed to pull back the their troops, 
the paramilitaries, now think about the Second Amendment in this country, right? It's sacred. We can't talk about it. The paramilitaries agreed to, to eliminate all weapons that are on the streets. And they would have these public demolitions where they would bring the guns in and in full view of everyone, destroy them. So suddenly, if there was a disagreement, and think about the protests, it didn't escalate because you didn't have people walking around on the streets with guns and bullhorns and you know things getting out of control. So they put the guns away. They, the British pulled the military out. They agreed on this new peace fund that would support economic development and not weapons. The European Union stepped in, this was fascinating, with a fund to support grassroots peace building efforts. So one of them was, and we just think about what we talked about with listening, you get victims of violence sitting down with ex-convicts who had been perpetrating the violence out of prison now. They would be given strict guidelines of how to interact it was one, one was to listen to the other, and then the other was to listen to the other. And the whole focus was to understand the other side and give citizens at the grassroots level the chance to, to play an active role in, in rebuilding their country. So it's not just the diplomats pulling this off. It's every citizen could be challenged. What well, was fascinating to talk to some of these folks I remember two women I interviewed. One of them still had a bullet near her heart. She, uh, an attempt was made to assassinate her, her uh, colleague, and it ricocheted. The other one was a daughter of an IRA combatant. And so in her community, her family was the terrorist in their midst. So she was scum. She was condemned. She, they lived in poverty. It was hard. The father was either in jail or on the run. So if both of those women got to tell their story and each of them is sitting down with an ex-convict and, and the convict had to hear, you know, he was initially as a soldier thinking, what battles have we won? What battles have we lost? Suddenly he had to listen to the, the voices of victims from the general public and the toll it was taking. What was also fascinating was the women had some sense of these people as being inherently evil, these, these convicts, you know, pathological killers. And what they, what they heard over and over again is these guys thought they were being patriotic, defending their community. That's why they picked up the gun. So there was this amazing, over a weekend, growth of understanding of the other. And... You know, when initially they talked to them, they were angry about their wound, the bullet, or the suffering. But when they were talking about this work of listening and empathizing, they just came alive. They brightened up, and they felt they were doing something positive for the whole community. And that was sweet. So things like that. I mean, it's a small step, but if we, like this European Fund for Peace Building, if we're willing to do something like that, all kinds of things, creative possibilities might surface that help us bridge some of these divides and move us in some new directions. So that long story, that's my reaction to the chaos is hopefully it'll be a spark for some creative ways forward.
it's so powerful. I mean, I, I was getting chills on the top of my head as you were talking about those women. And, you know, what, what strikes me, Bill, so much about our conversation and what you're sharing right now is that the focus isn't on let's try to see, again, who's right or wrong, or let's focus on being anti-protest or anti-this or anti-that. It's like, no, how can we move forward it's like nothing was solved by anti-war movements. It's by creating a peace initiative. That's right. By creating right. a peace movement. And right. we need if, these models for right. what it looks like. Right. Now, we, need, we needed to stop the Vietnam War. We needed to stop the war in Iraq. And we know that, the, in general, the public moved that way. But then you're right. So here's another example from this Northern Ireland story. Mayred McGuire, who won the Peace Prize, insisted that anyone who comes on these walks on Sunday bring an umbrella. Now, the weather is rough in Northern Ireland, but it was more than that because why did she insist, if you were marching with her, that you bring your umbrella? A defense. So you're a Catholic and you're walking into a Protestant community and people come out of the houses and start yelling at you, uh, swearing, throwing things. Oh, so yeah. up with the umbrellas and they were defensive shields. And then with the press there, suddenly you had visual images. Here's Stephanie James, and she's unarmed. She had, she's protecting her head from bottles and rocks being thrown at her. And they started capturing it in photographs and videos. And it went nationally, and then it went international. And it started to build a lot of support that they had to move out of this craziness. That that was and, and, and the local people, it wasn't the majority of the population throwing things. It was that small segment just wired. They had their own pain and hurt and convictions and they had to be challenged and their neighbors had to see this is not a way forward. We have to stop this craziness. These are our fellow citizens in the city of Belfast. So, Yeah, so, so powerful and so many parallels to what we're dealing with right now. Yeah. As we come back to the situation here in, in America, Bill, how do you see a way forward in everything that's happening right now. You know, things have, have calmed down a little bit in the last few days, but you just wait for this next wave to hit. Yeah. What, what do you see? What's your vision for this way forward? How do we start stepping into maybe these conversations or how do we start some of this grassroots movement yeah. so that we're creating that peace within ourselves and having these important conversations? So I see, I see lots and lots of grassroots efforts as well as finding new leaders because some of those in power now are holding on for dear life for their positions, trying to impose it on others, defend their privileges against these crazies on the left or the right. So, you know, we need new leaders. But for instance, locally in town, I've been volunteering with restorative justice for 15 years. And it's a totally different paradigm to dealing with offenders and conflicts and violence and a shift from punishment. So something happens. There's a boy who brought a pellet gun recently to school. And once someone in the school saw the gun uh, and alerted the school off the school uh, administrator, they, they quickly called the police and there was a lockdown and all that. The kid's a little oblivious. We think, you know, there's some other things, divorce at home, et cetera. Maybe it was attention-seeking, et cetera. 
But instead of the only response being retributive justice, criminal system, there was a law, you, sh- you needed to know the law, you broke the law, you're going to jail, or you're going to pay a fine or both. That's retributive justice, punishment. The focus in restorative justice is learning and healing. So this kid chose restorative justice. So we're pushing him. He's writing letters of apology to parents and, and school officials and the police, forces him to think of what, what he did, why he did what he did. He's doing community service. So how can you repay the harm? So he, he found a nonprofit that he's putting some number of hours in. And during that time, hopefully he's thinking about what he did. He's going to counseling. So some of, some of these folks, you know, need some professional help to move out of where they are and get to some deeper. And maybe, maybe it is divorced families that, you know, made him think he was uh, um, oblivious to everybody. So he's doing a number of things, but the focus is not pay your fine, young man, and then don't do it again next time. It'll be worse or sit in jail for a week or something. It's you need to learn something. You need to take some responsibility. And that's part of it. He had to acknowledge what he did. So he couldn't hide behind a lawyer saying, I didn't do that. You can't prove that I wanted to bring the gun. It was a mistake. So instead of getting lawyers arguing, he had to take full responsibility to go into the system. And that's what they use in South Africa after apartheid. How are we going to bridge the black-white difference? And part of it was to set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And those who had committed crimes or offenses had to come in, say what they did, apologize, ask for forgiveness from the families. It wasn't automatic, depending on what depended on what they did. But once it became this, and, and if, if they were believed, and it wasn't too horrific, if they didn't just slaughter thousands of people, then they would be granted amnesty from further prosecution. So there was a, there was a big reward. And locally, with restorative justice, if they go through the program, their record of arrest is wiped clean. So there's a, there's a benefit and a reward for them. So in South Africa, you had people coming forward, and you know it wasn't just the rebels with the guns. There were a lot of police and soldiers who came forward and said, yes, I tortured this person. Yes, I was part of beating the hell out of this crowd. I'm sorry now. I see that the system, the apartheid system, was what was evil. And Bishop Tutu brought this deep faith that, that every, everyone is redeemable. And that sort of was the foundation upon thinking about doing this differently. So that's sort of a, that's an example locally of what we could do. And restorative justice came in with the support of local police and local judges. It's much cheaper than just hiring more police. Most of us working with it are volunteers. And... So that's an example of one way forward in one segment of society that could build some new capacities for listening, for understanding, for empathy, for solving conflicts differently. Your support means the world to us. Hi, it's Dr. Natalie Phillips from Connecting a Better World. Everything we do here at NOCO FM is member-supported. From the music we play to our original podcasts and live shows, all of that costs money to produce, and we can't do it without you. Become a member today and invest in the programming you enjoy so we can create more together. Learn more at noco.fm. 
Listen to the stories the black community is telling. Hesitate to respond as you normally would and really listen. It's time to amplify their voices and show up for them. Black Lives Matter. As we do that now, if we start having these, and 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 I do feel like some of these tough conversations are happening, mm-hmm. that, that you know we can start to see our way through. And yet, part of what I've heard from clients of mine, other people I've been having some of these conversations with, is it's also hard right now to feel like we even have a compass to guide ourselves through right. this. Right. And one of the issues that's been raised, and I'm really curious, Bill, to see what you think, is about how do we as people that have been advocates of peace, or some people refer to as thought leaders or light workers, right. how do we show up in this current situation and not take on all the guilt and take on, you yeah. know, it's like it's like here we've been dedicating our lives to putting positive and peace and good into the world. And yet there's still this piece of, well, that's not enough. Or we hear right now that you still haven't been doing it right. Right. That's a big question. Uh, Like a lot of my work is around sustainability. How do we promote that? And with the threat of climate change, I heard a podcast the other day about, about uh, the species extinction. And one guy claiming we may be within 10 years of seeing some collapses and it's mind-boggling. How do you not get paralyzed by thinking about something like that? On the flip side, we were just out having breakfast today, coming from physical therapy, and the restaurant, because of the virus, put these you know, sugar and salt in separate packets on the table. And when we take, get takeout, because we, you know, a lot of restaurants aren't open. We get an awful lot of plastic. So when you look at the problems with climate change and you see images of all this plastic in our oceans, it resonates. And so on a personal level, I find myself saying, I, I, I don't, I, there's no easy answer, but I, I refuse to continue to accept plastic as the only. So we've, we shop at the co-op with bulk, bulk foods, as much as possible. So I, I know in my own brain there's been a huge shift. Plastic used to be sort of this miracle uh, invention, and now it's everywhere, and it's, it's, it's threatening. But that's something anyone, any individual can do, is to uh, see how their own personal behaviors, their diet, their use of transportation. I haven't been on my bicycle in two months because of the the, the surgery, and as much as possible, all year round, the sun, warm, heat, rain, snow, ice, I'm on my bicycle as much as possible. People at work thought I was a little insane, but to me, it was a, it was a regular reminder that I needed to, to act differently and think differently, and so I think that's that's one way I'm dealing with sort of the craziness of it is just try to make sure my actions are in alignment with what my beliefs are. And because of climate change, if I need to start thinking differently, so we have one car in the family, 
and we've had talks recently about is could we even move away from one car because it sits in the driveway most of the time because in decent weather we're on our bicycles so why are we having this polluting machine in our driveway 24 7 and we use it two or three times a week what about car sharing what about other models of transportation and Fort Collins was built for cars and we sprawl and you know the transportation I grew up in Boston where we had public transportation and if you drove somewhere you had a cost of parking and all that so that's where you know the I, I try to think about how we can take these challenges we face and challenge ourselves and our friends and coworkers to think differently about how to move forward. Are you and some emotional intelligence, you know, that you, you write about. How do, how do we not get lost or demoralized in the emotions and how do we pull ourselves up and move forward in a new, in a new direction? And I mean, and that's really part of what I'm asking, because I, I do think that, and I, and I love, you know, part of what I'm hearing from you is that it is each one of us individually, it's our responsibility to kind of put ourselves in check, you know, really ask ourselves, how, how conscious are we being? Right. And so whether it's climate change and, you know, the other thing I'm thinking about is with what's going on right now with the Black Lives Matter right. and the protests. And, you know, sometimes we're hearing from some of those folks in the protests saying, okay, even though you're an aware, conscious person, you're mm -hmm. still not doing enough. Right, right. So how do you take your angry anger at what happened to George Floyd and, and, turn it into something constructive and positive. So years ago when restorative justice showed up in town, I said, I, you know, I knew about some of this and I wanted to volunteer on something that was different, that pointed to another way forward. Because in restorative justice, in our circles and the panels, we, we usually have a police officer. So I've gotten to know several of these police and they're, they're the only ones I've met in town are good people. Some of their training, I think, is, is probably limited. They could use much more of training with social workers and, and less training in how to use a gun and save yourself. But, you know, we could get there and, you know, and rethink it all. So, you know, we also have to work and typically and you know, support our families and all that. So there are limits and we need to have fun and celebrate with friends, but we can challenge ourselves to do things differently, to, to, you know, get out of our comfort zones, to see films that are tough, to see, um, to, to join groups, you know, book study groups. I was frustrated a lot on campus because I didn't see enough of my colleagues willing to take on sustainability as an issue in their math classes. Well, they said, Timson, what, what the hell are you talking about math classes? I said, you know, if this is a threat that's facing the entire planet, perhaps in your study of examples where math is used, you, you could look at some of the numbers that are coming down the road and help young people do some analyses, you know, we doomed. There's some examples of people doing things differently as a way forward. And the same thing around diversity. 
the chemistry people said, well, this is chemistry. This is not diversity. Well, you know, your graduates from this chemistry class go out into the world. And if they don't have decent values around diversity and being with people who are different, they may just perpetuate the systems that they're in. So it, it's not, education is not the be all and end all if it's too limited. You know, it needs to be expansive. Educators need to be challenged. You know, are they preparing people for the future? Or are they just locked inside their own disciplines? You know, this work on diversity and peace and sustainability, it's inherently interdisciplinary. It's not just environmental studies or sociology or economics. It cuts across. So I've, do, I've done a lot of work with case studies like they use in law school or business schools because they deal with complexity. And a lot of faculty honestly get very nervous because they're trained in, as sub-disciplinary experts, chemistry, organic chemistry, physical chemistry. And you say, yeah, but what about the craziness in the streets? And what about the tear gas that's being used? There's chemistry there. And uh, that makes them nervous. No, that's not in the curriculum. The curriculum is set Tuesday in June. I have to be dealing with this and covering this, and they have to take notes and pass tests. And, and I get some of that, but it's, it's such a minimal expectation. And we're educating citizens for the world. So I think any of us can, can push on existing areas of, of, that are problematic or rigid and and contribute to church communities. I went in November, I joined the Plymouth Congregational Church in town and went down to the border area to look at the wall and the refugee situation. And then last spring in May, I joined a Presbyterian group that went to the Ukraine and Russia because that place was, that, that conflict was boiling up to see what people from faith communities might do to see firsthand what's happening and maybe be a presence for something different happening. The craziness at the wall with Trump is not changing that I can see. The pain is still there. But in Ukraine, uh, things have calmed down. They're not, they pull the troops back, they exchange prisoners, they're having a summit. So there's been some real progress over there and anybody can do that. Plus it was a great trip and good people and so who we surround ourselves with in restorative justice, a lot of these kids get in trouble because of who they're hanging with. You know, they, they're bored. And so they want to go to the mall and rip off some stores. You know, they want to build up their ego by stealing stuff. But we see it on campus. Kids get in trouble with drugs, etc., And often they want to be cool. They want to be accepted and they get pressured into this and that. So that's another thing. You know, who do we hang with? Who are our friends? Are they the kind of friends we would like to have? What, will, what would ennoble us, make us better, challenge us to be better? So we can all do that on a daily basis. You know, you're reminding me, there's a quote that says, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Interesting. Yeah. So to, to really take that into account and, and to really say also, I, I love that as well as we can challenge also the people that we surround ourselves with. Right. 
That's right. And help to expand their awareness and their consciousness and hopefully also their contribution. Right, right. And maybe choose some different friends. That's what happens with a lot of these young people. They're with the wrong group and they're trying to impress kids who are doing things, you know, the, 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 the mischief maker who gets the attention in school and in the, in the neighborhood. Well, maybe you need some other role models. When I was in Cleveland teaching inner city, there were kids at the juvenile detention home who honestly wanted to be gangsters. I mean, those were the, those were the period people they looked up to, you know, rebelliousness, carrying guns around, doing drugs. And sadly, too many of them ended up in the state pen or got in trouble or never survived. But it's the choices they were making, you know. And in Northern Ireland, the paramilitaries would feed off of the anger of the young who were unemployed, unemployable, poor education. They would uh, often offer them some compensation for becoming a foot soldier. So they were the biggest, most attractive presence for a lot of these young, young men in particular. And it took, again, the peace movement dominated by women to challenge that, that mindset, that these, this avenue, this militaristic, violent approach was, was destroying their communities and their home lives. You know, and I, I know that that is true. I know one of the people I had on my show was John Raz, and mm. he's a Hollywood producer, and, and he and Jim Carrey, the actor, do a weekly transcendental meditation group, and they work very closely with something called the Homeboys Project mm. Mm. in L.A., and they've help, helped over 30,000 gang members successfully wow. exit. Wow, good to them. Good yeah. And so I think, you know, by, by teaching them transcendental meditation, and I, and I think that that's, this is kind of the movement that I see too, that, you know, we need to start giving people other resources, other that's skills right. that they can tap that's into right. so that they're seeing the benefits and seeing role models as someone other than just the person with the gun, the person right. with the car. Right. Um, and, and that, how we do that is important. I mean, we could, we could yell at these kids. And we know from restorative justice work that never works. It just hardens them to, oh, another adult yelling at us. It's about listening. It's about empathizing. It's finding ideas that get the kids excited about doing something different. Often they will listen to other kids who've turned the corner and let go of friends that were problematic or, or went to see counselors to deal with the drug issue or something like that. So it's how we deal with young people. And that's why I like this uh, alternative approaches to education that are more discussion-based, student-centered. And, and then the, the critics will say, yeah, but they've got a pass test. They've got to know something. Well, there are medical schools that have committed to a problem-based learning approach. And you say, no, wait a second. Doctors have to know surgery. Yeah, and there are plenty of resources for studying surgery. But they also have to know how to think on their feet how to deal with complex problems that walk in where there's no easy answer. So Harvard, New Mexico, other places, they have this problem-based approach and, and they still have to pass the exams. So there's a lot of studying on their own, but you don't need someone up front saying, learn this, memorize that, study that, this is on the test. 
you need people who are honest and real and bright and creative to say, all right, here's a problem. How are we going to do this? And to make it really student-centered. But that's a real challenge for the way we often are taught to educate, you know, get through the curriculum, hold them accountable, keep them in their seats and quiet and make sure they're studying for the next test because that's, that will be the, the gateway for them to move on. And, and uh, there's so much more that's possible. As we're wrapping up, Bill, what I want to ask you is, what, what is the essential message that you want to make sure people are hearing and, and that people are really getting with what's going on in the world right now? What, what do you want to leave people with? One with study. One of my heroes is Elise Boulding, who wrote Cultures of Peace. And she said, you must study places where positive things are happening and what contributed. We tend to focus in on the negatives, the tragedies, the protests in the streets, who started it, who's causing it, what the, what the problems are, etc. So we have to be willing to study. We have to be willing to read other viewpoints, other perspectives. The work on intellectual development says we have to be willing to push ourselves to understand other perspectives. Not that we have to agree with everything else, but to understand why do those people say that, like the two women I mentioned, to see these ex-cons as, as trying to be patriotic. And that, that softened them. They saw now there was a way forward to reach across the divide. There's an emotional intelligence. You know, we tend to do so little of that in the schools or at homes, but there's a lot been written about emotional intelligence and empathy and, and how to handle anger. So there are a lot of skills I would hope people would be open to learning, whether they're in the schools or at the universities or in the communities and the churches, etc. There are skills for how to handle emotions in a more effective way or how to handle angry thoughts or how to handle my desire for revenge. So in class, I had my students read Bishop Tutu's book, No Future Without Forgiveness. And he has a fabulous chapter on rethinking revenge. And if the black population would just return in favor of what was done to them, you'd have an annihilation, you'd have a civil war. And he said, we have to be open to letting go of the burden of needing revenge, of seeing possibilities in other people, helping them. Not, it's not a free pass to do whatever you want. There are consequences. But if you're willing to learn, we can bring you back into communities. And we've seen spectacular examples in Rwanda in villages where you had in the, in the massacres, you had victims who lost family members and the killers still living side by side. And the Quakers have a program where they would go in and people would go through a training how to let go of that need for revenge and find ways forward. It, it's slow. It's not, it's not sort of linear and predictable. But uh, there are skills we all can learn about uh, handling conflicts intellectually and emotionally. And that's what I would hope as a society here and elsewhere in the world people could get to. Wonderful. And Bill, share the title of your book on diversity. It's called Tips for Teaching Diversity. 
147. We took examples from around the world, historically and present, of how people have handled and are handling diversity in new and different ways. And it's a whole skill set and it's backed up by good research and some good writing, intellectual sources, emotional sources, cultural sources. And it's drawn mostly from practitioners, people who have used these ideas in their classes. So it's full of examples of what people have done. So it's not just preaching about what works, but it's giving uh, written examples of what does work. And I'll leave you the, the newest book is this, We Are Strong Together, Learning Life's Lessons. And what I've done is, for instance, the month of June, looking back historically, when have there been conflicts? What have other people done in the month of June, whenever, historically? And so you not only see your, yes, there's been turmoil in the past in June, and how did those people in Northern Ireland get through it? How did people in South Africa get through it? So there are examples out there historically that we can learn from and study and then challenge ourselves to, to move forward in a different kind of way. Both of those are just amazing resources. Can people get those on Amazon, Bill? I'm yes, hoping people yes. will utilize that, those resources, right. so that we can continue these conversations. Yes. would love to, would love to. Wonderful. Thank you, Bill, so much for this time and for just sharing your experience and, yeah, helping and, and, us and to it, see another way through. And as a full-time professional, I appreciate you're doing these kinds of things and bringing something new and different on top of a busy life, professional life already. So thank you for stepping into that, uh, that arena. I really do hope that we can start embracing these kind of conversations and lean into them even when they feel uncomfortable. It's so important that we start building what Bill called a rainbow nation that's inclusive of all colors. How can we look at other cultures and countries and history to gain the wisdom so that we can truly learn from these examples and move forward in a way where we're really honoring the diversity of each one of us and embracing us all as an important thread in this tapestry called humanity. So much of what Bill said really resonated with me around how important it is that we do start having these uncomfortable conversations, whether it's diversity, sustainability, looking at climate change, and that it's when we start listening to one another and not focusing on who's right or wrong, but truly start listening and getting the idea that we are stronger together. That came through more than any other message in this show. I feel like as we do the research that we need to do, as we have the conversations that we need to have, that we're going to start moving forward in a new way, more informed, living more fully through our hearts in a more inclusive, diverse community where we all feel connected and we all feel valued. Remember, the Spark is your show, too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO FM.